Amen. You guys go ahead and be seated. Thanks for taking a moment to pray with me. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that and meet me over in the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 today. We're continuing in our series through the book of Daniel. Uh, We're going to look at Daniel chapter 3 for the next two weeks, so today and next week. And like I've told you every single week as you get there, the big idea for the entire book of Daniel is this. The big idea is how believers need to learn how to live in Babylon without letting Babylon live in them. If you remember, the book of Daniel starts out with the nation of Israel, a nation of Babylon ransacking Israel, taking them into exile, and deporting their people to create what we would call cultural genocide. They were trying to destroy their people and assimilate them into their culture. The Babylonian empire was so evil that they took the Judean king before they brought him into exile and they murdered all of his kids in front of him and then poked out his eyes so the very last thing he would ever see on earth was his kids being tortured and murdered. That's the context of the people you were dealing with. For most people who were lucky enough to survive, they were exiled and they were assimilated into a new cultural worldview, given new names and even new food to eat. Now today, I want to show you that the deepest level of cultural assimilation, the deepest level of genocide that they tried to get was the assimilation or the transformation of the mind. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he sets up a statue to himself and he forces everyone to worship it. And those who don't, he tells he's going to put into the fiery furnace. This is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And it leaves us with a question. Here's the question. Will you have the courage to worship God when the fire of culture gets hot? That's the, that's the question. Joni Erickson Tata, if you know her story, came to faith at a summer camp when she was 14 years old. And like most teenagers who come to faith at a young age in America, she wrestled with walking with Jesus and confusing it with living the American dream. She talks about how her prayers subtly changed from worshiping Jesus to God, would you bring me another boyfriend or would you help me lose weight? Well, right before she goes off to college, when she's 17 years old, she realizes that this paradigm is happening in her life, and she doesn't want that to be the case. She actually tells God, God, I don't want to go off to college and ruin your reputation, so would you help me live for you? Well, that day when she prayed that prayer, her and her sister went to the beach for just an outing for the day, and they jumped into the water, they swam out to a buoy, and without her knowing it, the water was shallow beneath her. She jumped off head first, hit her head and severed her spine, laid face down in the water, thinking that she was taking her last breath in life. Come, not, no kidding, her sister who's swimming gets bit by a crab, turns around and sees her sister laying there, rescues her, brings her to the hospital, only to find out that she is now a quadriplegic. For the next 50 years, she asked this question, God, are you good? It's a legitimate question to ask. Well, in an interview, here's what she said. She says, God saved my life because although I could not learn how to walk in this world, he taught me how to walk with Jesus. And then she says this, one of my favorite quotes of hers. She says, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it there and put it over in a little corner in heaven. And then in my new, perfectly glorified body, standing on these grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know what I mean because he knows me. And then when we were able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus will wipe away all the tears from my eyes. And she says, you know what's poignant about that is I'll finally have the ability to use my own hands to wipe away my own tears, and I won't have to because God will do it for me. And then 
And then after that, I will say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that wheelchair. Now you can take that wheelchair and you can throw it in hell. (laughs) At some point, at some point, we are all gonna be left with that same question, aren't we? Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is good even in your situations and will you have the courage to stand with him when everybody else around you bows down to culture? Now maybe for you, it's gonna be some big catastrophic moment like it was for Joni Erickson Tata. Maybe, but I'm just willing to bet that it's not. I'm willing to bet it's gonna be really smaller reckonings of your faith that happen all the time. Again, you're gonna have to ask God, God, are you good whenever you hit the crossroads of looking back on your past and realizing the failures of your parents in the past and and the cost that you're paying for their failures? Or is God good when life doesn't satisfy you the way that you thought it would? You're 40 years old and you're not as far along in your career as you thought. You're living in a neighborhood and all your other friends seem to be living in million dollar houses and you wonder, God, are you good? Is God good when you're not? Is God good whenever you seem to be failing? Y'all, Satan's playbook is to convince you that God really isn't all that good. And he does that because if he convinces you that God's not all that good, well, you will fall whenever everything else around you seems to be better. Today, I wanna show you In Daniel chapter three, that there are three guys who are faced with that same question. Do they trust God? Do they believe that God is good? And do they have the courage to stand whenever everything else around them seems to be falling? Let me walk you through the story really quickly. King Nebuchadnezzar, he just gets off of this miraculous event, if you remember last week, where Daniel interprets his nightmare dream that he continues to have. So the king, he calls forth the Egyptians, the enchanters, all these people, and he tells them, hey, interpret my dream. The only problem is he doesn't tell him what the dream is. Well, he creates this impossible situation and then God comes to Daniel and he tells him what the king's dream is and Daniel goes and interprets it. At this point, at this point, King Nebuchadnezzar should have known that there was a God in heaven. He should have known that the miraculous, the impossible was made possible by God, but his pride gets in the way and pride always destroys our hearts by taking God and moving him off the throne and putting ourselves back in the center. That's what happens. So Daniel chapter three opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar setting up an idol to worship on the plain of Dura. Okay, look at verse one. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose weight was 60 cubits and breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Y'all, every detail matters and there's some significant details going on here that will set the stage for the entire chapter. The plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, scholars will tell you, was a significant location because it was probably the location of the Tower of Babel. There's a play on words going on here. This Babel meant that they were trying to build up a tower to overthrow God because they thought that if they could unite themselves together against God, then they could make their own society. Well, the same exact thing is happening here. Look at verse 4. Here's what it says. And the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. They're trying to do the same exact thing. They're trying to bring back a unifying force to dethrone God. King Neb looks at the vision that God has and he says, I can build a better one. From the very first first verse in this chapter, you should know that what is being set up is this. If you try to build your own kingdom, it will not work. Think about it. Think about how the last chapter ended. If you remember the vision, there was a statue. God tells Nebuchadnezzar that you will be the head of gold and then there'll be clay and iron and all these other things that represent all these kingdoms. Well, that statue, as it tries to get bigger and bigger, gets crushed by this rock that comes out of nowhere, that rock being Jesus. Here's what he was telling him. He was telling him, if you try to build your own kingdom, I'm going to crush it. Yet King Neb, 
He's a little hard-headed. God has already tried to show him that if you build your own kingdom, it will not work, and that Jesus will come and smash it. Y'all, what you need to understand is that this is a microcosm of a much larger story. It is the battle that every single human being goes through in their life. It's the story of this. It's a glory war over whose kingdom will you live for. Here's the question you should be left with. Will you try to build your own kingdom or will you live for God's kingdom? Do you know why this is such an important question? Listen to me. Most of you, I'd be willing to bet, none of you are going to ever run your own country. And yet, God has given you stewardship over something. Whether it be your family, who's gonna sit on the throne of your family or your finances? Each and every one of us has some sphere of life that God has given us ownership over. And the question is, who's gonna sit on the throne of that sphere? Will you build your kingdom or will you live for God's? See, what you need to understand is that culture will continually push you to pursue your own destiny and build your own kingdom. I think the greatest lie of Satan to our generation is the American dream of rugged individualism, to just do it on your own and you will be fine. What you need to understand is that if you will do that, you, if you live for your own glory, it will eventually collapse in on itself. Now, historically, here's what's happening. The Babylonians would create these things called ziggurats. They look like uh, a pyramid, but they had staircases that would go up like this. This is what the idols were. What's fascinating, and you can go back and historically look at this, they were made of solid clay, which meant that they didn't have a hollow middle, and they would eventually end up collapsing on themselves. The Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. Most scholars would tell you that every idol they made was. God was trying to communicate, if you try to build your own kingdom, if you try to make your way up to me instead of letting me come down to you, at some point, it's going to collapse in on itself because you were never meant to sustain the weight of your own glory. See, so the king, the king, he decides to build a 90-foot tall statue of himself because he thinks he's a big deal. But again, if you remember this, God tells him, hey, your head is going to be gold. Like you're going to, you're going to have this good thing. But that's not good enough for him. So he makes the entire thing pure gold because he wants to be everything. He's telling all the people, he's making a declaration that he will not bow down to God, but you need to bow down to him. That he will create his own way. Do you see the subtle idolatry? He, he's, he's not just building a statue, he's making a declaration that salvation is not found in God, but salvation is found in erecting your own little kingdom. Y'all, there is a word of warning in this for us. Sin will not, only, will not only dethrone God, but it will continually tell you and convince you that you can put yourself in the middle and eventually you will turn, yourself, you will turn your life to the wrong savior. Here it is. If you don't live for God's kingdom, you will fall. You will fall by looking for kingdoms of this world to save you. See, what you have to understand is nothing in this world can sustain the weight of your own heart. And if I can just get on the soapbox for a second, isn't this what we're seeing? I mean, my goodness, don't you see that the epicenter of culture right now is that a lot of us are living for the kingdom of America instead of the, instead of the kingdom of God? So what we've done is we, we put political systems to be our savior and we worship a donkey or an elephant instead of the lamb of God that was slain? Think about it. That's why we're crushed whenever the government changes. Yo, know, let me say it like this. This is exactly what sin does. It always puts you in the center and it pushes God aside. Sin in the Bible is not a bunch of things that you do wrong. It's a condition of your heart that goes all the way back to the very first sin that told God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. 
Every, now, every day of our lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we put ourselves in the narrative or do we say we want the entire thing to be about me? Right, like Toby Keith. I wanna talk about me, I wanna talk about me. Mine, 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 mine. That is, the, that is the theology of the human life. And good old Neb does the same exact thing that every single one of us do all the time. We put ourselves in the center. My friend Brian Loritz said it this way, worldliness is autonomy gone viral. At the end of the day, worldliness is you buying in on your own press. You just think you're a big deal. Y'all, the entire narrative can be boiled down to this. Who are you going to worship, yourself or your God? Like I've said every single week, like you've already seen, Babylon, it's not just a city in the Bible. It's the personification of all evil. It represents the systems of this world set up against God. And today's culture is no different. We aren't talking about cities, we're talking about systems, and there's something deeper going on here. There's a system that says that you can do anything you wanna do and you can be anything you wanna be. If you just build your little kingdom and erect your statue, you can worship that. If you do that, and listen to me, you can. Especially living here in Alpharetta, Milton, Georgia. You can honestly have a pretty good life worshiping your own little statue. You can have a successful job. You can have kids that make straight A's and play on all the all-star teams. Like you can get to the end of your life and be pretty philanthropic. But let me just tell you, I've been doing this long enough and I've watched enough TV and I know enough of you to know this. You won't be satisfied. You will be crushed by the weight of a life that cannot sustain the glory of your heart. And that's what's happening here. Y'all write this down. The epicenter of worldliness is idolatry. And idols in 2023, they're not golden images. You realize that, right? We're not building statues anymore. They're anything you turn to for your ultimate hope and satisfaction. Since I haven't quoted the patron saint of City Church in the last couple weeks, let me just quote Tim Keller again, right? He says this, idols are good things that you ultimately elevate to God things and they become the thing that you worship. Y'all, King Neb is setting up an idol for everyone to bow down and worship. And listen, y'all, there is a cultural pressure for you to do the same exact thing in your life. If you don't conform to culture, I'm telling you, they will crucify you. Do you know how I know? Do a thought experiment with me. Go home today on social media and type out a post that says that you believe in the nuclear family of a husband and a wife that loves their family and tell them that you believe that the husband's the head of the wife and the wife should love and submit and honor her husband. Then come back to me on Monday and tell me how that post went for you. All right, I just want you to check in. What's your image of God? Let me just ask you. Like, what's the one thing in your life that you are in danger of replacing God for? Is it your success? Is it your kid's success? Y'all, I'm just telling you, can I, can I just tell you the sinfulness of my own heart? My five-year-old, who's never really played sports before, didn't make the all-star baseball team, and I was a little crushed by that. I, I'm like, and then I had to, I'm like, it's T-ball. Why do they even have all-star teams? Right? Is it how you look as a parent? When your kid throws a fit in Target and you're embarrassed? Are you embarrassed because of your kid or are you embarrassed because of how you look? What is it? What is that thing that you're in danger of worshiping? See, the king, he gathers, he gathers all the people together. He makes this a dedication to his new God, which is himself, made in his own image. And by the way, that word image there shows up in this chapter 10 times because Daniel wants you to recognize that this is a counterfeit. And like I told you last week, the greatest danger of your life is that you will trade in God for a counterfeit. That's the point. We don't normally dedicate ourselves to golden images. We're not in danger of doing that. We're in danger of trading God in for a fake, fake success, 
right? So we dedicate ourselves to living our entire lives and worshiping our success only to find out that when we get to the end of our life, the ladder was leaning up against the wrong wall the entire time. Temporary beauty, right? So we'll leverage everything we can just to feel pretty one more time. How about quick satisfaction and significance and affirmation from somebody that we know we shouldn't be seeking it from? So we leverage our morals so that we can feel good and feel loved. All of these are golden idols that culture tells you that you should pursue, but they will leave you empty. So the king sets up a dedication ceremony, right? And he gives these, he invites all the people and he gives these directives. Hey, when the DJ hits the music, you either fall down and worship or I'm gonna throw you into the fiery pit. Look at verse four. And the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, by the way, who knows what a trigon is? We looked it up this week and Zach's gonna start playing it next week. <laughs> the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the harp, the, uh, the pipe, the lair, the trigon, the, uh, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Unfortunately, everyone, everyone bows down and worships. Everyone besides Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen to me. Cultural conformity is easy, and that's why most people do it. I'm telling you, it's a lot easier to criticize than it is to contribute. It's a lot easier to conform than it is to walk with Jesus. And for most people, you don't think that it costs you anything. Because our cultural Christianity, it doesn't really cost you anything to just go along with the flow and mix it together. But listen, it will cost you something. I'm telling you, you can write it down. You, you, you will either leverage your life to save your soul or you will leverage your soul to save your life. You might not see it in the moment, but that's, that is what will happen. You will either stand for God or you will bow to culture. Now, now, there's something you need to understand that I think is massively important. If you're going to stand with God, here's what you need to understand. It's the same thing as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't stand in isolation. They stood in community. Notice that. They did it together. If you're going to stand for God, you cannot stand in isolation. Y'all, Satan's greatest tactic, I'm telling you, it's rugged individualism. It's to convince you that you can be successful enough that you just don't need God. You can be type A enough. You can have enough money in your bank account. You can go to Publix, even though inflation is made like, we can't even have lunch meat anymore. And you can go get it on your own. Y'all, I love the Discovery Channel. When does that buffalo get destroyed? Right? The lion attacks whenever he's on his own. That's always the case. And Satan is always a cat. So there you have it. Look, Satan will convince you that you can do it on your own. But it is a biblical truism. It is a biblical truism that community, community, community is the only way to do it because you are too fragile to, to, to live this world on your own. Look at Ecclesiastes 4. Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you want to stand in this culture, you need to learn to stand alone. All right, stand together. Don't, don't get that one. 
Listen, everything in culture will tell you you don't need one another. It's just a lie. That's why the church is so important. I need to see your faith and you need to see my faith and we need to live in community. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided that they were going to stand and they were gonna stand with God and they were going to do it together and the king got pretty ticked about it. So the king, he calls a closed door meeting and he says, hey, listen, bro, I get it. Like, I get it, you messed up. You probably didn't hear the DJ, so we're gonna kick it one more time. When the DJ hits the music, you can fall down and worship or listen, I'm just gonna kill you. And then, then King Nebuchadnezzar says maybe the dumbest statement in all of human history. Verse 15, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Y'all, isn't that not like the most arrogant statement ever? I almost get the sense, and I know this is not theologically accurate, but I get the sense God's sitting up in heaven, he's hanging out, and he kind of perks up and he's like, oh, Neb, I've been letting you play God for too long. I'm gonna come down and I'm gonna take care of this now. Well, he does. Here's what he says. Listen to what Shadrach and the boys answered the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Y'all, this is the guy who's telling you if you don't worship him, I'm gonna kill you and this is your response. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Literally everything you need to know about the Christian faith and courage can be found in this statement. But let me make something clear to you. And and, and this is true of Nebuchadnezzar and it's true of culture today. Jesus is not the problem. hear, Hear me whenever I say this. Culture doesn't care about Jesus. Contrary to popular belief, you can actually worship Jesus and get along in culture. The problem is, is you can't worship Jesus alone, okay? Culture will tell you, you can add Jesus to the pantheon of your gods. Nebuchadnezzar would have been fine with that. He didn't care that they were worshiping Jesus before. What he cared about is that they made an exclusive claim, I'm not gonna worship you because I can only worship him. Listen to me, Jesus has already told you and he will continue to tell you he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. For too many of us, We are trying to add Jesus into the pantheon of cultural gods, and I'm telling you, you will not risk anything for doing that. But Jesus doesn't have it that way. He even tells us in James chapter four, he's a jealous God who comes because he will not not share the throne of your heart with anyone else. So let me pause for just a second, give you a couple observations that will help you and I respond and thrive in a culture that we live in. Here's number one. They had real faith. They had real faith. Here's what I mean. Their faith was not contingent upon God rescuing them out of the fiery furnace. Y'all, let me, let me say this. this. This makes me cringe and more mad than just about anything. How many of us know somebody who has sat there and told you, if you just pray harder, if you just pray harder, God will heal you. Y'all, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in the hospital room and somebody has said that and I just wanna go and punch him in the throat because that sounds really good until that five-year-old boy dies. And then the parents are left crushed because they're sitting there saying, I didn't pray hard enough. No, that's not true. That's not how it works. That might sound good, but it actually will leave you crushed. Notice this statement. If you underline statements in your Bible, put that verse back up there. But if not. But if not. That's, not, that's a qualifying statement, but it's not a qualifying statement of unbelief. Y'all, they're not saying, like many of us say, God, I believe that I want you to save me, but honestly, I don't know if you can. No, that's not what they're saying. It's a realistic statement, watch this, to say, God, your ways are better than my ways. I trust you, but even if you don't, regardless of the outcomes, I will worship you. Listen, if your faith, 
If your faith is dependent upon the outcomes of your life, I'm just telling you, you might not have real faith. You might not be worshiping the God of the Bible. You might be worshiping an image of yourself. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew is that the only God worthy of worship was Jesus. And he was worth worshiping. You know how they knew this? Because they were sitting there whenever Daniel heard the dream. And they prayed together with him. They knew how the end of the story would go. They saw the vision. They knew that God was going to intervene one way or another. He was either going to intervene by saving them from the fiery furnace or he's going to intervene by saving them to heaven. I think for many of us, the problem is, is we don't realize how good heaven actually is. And that Jesus has already proven his love for us by the cross and his power over your circumstances by the resurrection. And no matter what, no matter what the outcome is that God is going to save you. Do you have the kind of faith that knows that no matter what happens in this life, Jesus is better and you will never bow down and worship anything else? Y'all, I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. He who hung the stars in the sky and knows them by name is in no danger of forgetting his children. You realize that? He's in no danger of forgetting you. Y'all, the God who created everything is in control of even your most impossible situation. Do you believe that? See, these three guys had a conviction because their faith didn't rest on the outcomes, but it rested in their God. I think for many of us, we lose our faith because honestly, our faith is not in our God, it's in our outcomes. Do you, you know faith? Can I just tell you? Faith by itself is pretty dumb. You probably haven't heard that before. Let me give you an example. Maybe you have faith that you can fly. My five-year-old puts on a cape, he thinks he can fly. So what do we do? We go rent a prop jet, get up to about 10,000 feet. Dustin's got this big faith that he can fly. And I'm like, all right, I kick him out. We know the outcome. He's not going to fly. Y'all, faith doesn't work. The object of your faith is what matters. Let me just ask you, the thing that you put your faith in, is it actually strong enough to save you? What the world does not need is you to tell them to have more faith. What they need is for you to tell them that the God that you have faith in is strong enough to actually save them. Right, that he has power over the grave. He rose from the dead and I'm putting my faith in that. What people need to know is that God is strong enough to save them. Let me just ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that he's strong enough to save you? Do you believe that he's able to save you? And do you believe that he is good? If you believe those three things, you will have the conviction to stand for God and not fall to culture. Matter of fact, that's what, that, that's, that, that, that conviction happens only because you believe that the object of your faith is real and that's what they believed. Here's number two. They believe that God is able. Not only did they believe that God was the center of their worship, they actually believed that God was able to do something. See, it's one thing, it's one thing to believe that there's a God out there, but do you believe that he is able? Right? Do you believe that he's able to save your marriage? Because if you don't, you know what you're going to do? You're going to trade in your spouse for another one. By the way, divorce rates go way higher in the second marriage than they do in the first. Because the problem is not your spouse. Just saying. Do you believe that God is able to heal your broken heart? To heal your anxiety? Do you believe that God is able to satisfy that soul, that soul vacuuming thing inside of you that just needs more? Do you believe that God is able? See, they believe that God was able. They believed that God was able because they knew the stories of the past. They knew that God parted the Red Seas. They knew that God provided them the veggies that they needed to eat. They knew that God heard the dream. They based their life off of what they knew to be true, even whenever it seemed impossible. Write this down. Biblical faith believes that God can, expects that he will, but trusts him if he doesn't. See, do you believe that God can? Do you believe that God really can change your situation? Do you believe that he can heal your marriage or cure your cancer? Do you expect that he will? 
See, most of us, I, most of us just pray like we don't expect that God's gonna do anything. Like seriously, let me just ask you, does your theology, is it big enough to expect that God can suspend the natural and do the supernatural? Do you believe that God actually can and do you expect that he will? I do, you know how I know it? I've seen him do it. There's somebody sitting in this room right now that their mom was told that they, she would have terminal cancer and if she went through a treatment, there was like a 10% chance that she would live and he told me this week that she is now in recession. Do you, do you believe that he can? Do you believe that he will? I've seen it happen in your lives. I've watched somebody in this room, and, and, and I would tell him this, so I'm, not, I'm not dogging him, but he was the most intolerable person. Like, nobody wanted to be around him, and now like, I look at him a couple years later, and God has worked on him so much that he is the kindest human being I know, and it's only a supernatural event that God has changed his heart. Y'all, I see it all the time in your lives, and I see it in my life. Do you believe that he will? Now, do you trust him if he doesn't? In Hebrews 11, that, 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 that chapter comes right before Hebrews 12, it talks about this great hall of faith. All these people that did, God, God did miraculous things through their lives. He tells you that they shut the mouths of lions, that they put foreign armies to flight, that they obeyed God, and, the, and that God changed the world through them. Most of us stop there, but if you actually look at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, listen to what it said. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Oh, I would underline that. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Even if God doesn't, even if your story ends up like the second half of this list, do you believe that God is good? See, the only way you're ever going to stand is if you believe that God is good, which is what leads to number three. They actually believe that God was good. They didn't only believe that God can. They didn't only believe that God is able. They, they, they believe that God would save them because he was good. Y'all, hear, hear me. If your God has the ability to save you and chooses not to or refuses to, that's not a good God. But Jesus has proven his love for you. He proved his love for you by putting on flesh, by living your perfect life, by dying in your place, by raising from the dead. And I'm telling you, I say this all the time, he proved his love by the cross and his power by the resurrection. Here's the reality. And this statement right here might be one of the most important statements you'll ever hear. The goodness of God is displayed by his presence in your life. Listen to me. This is something you need to remember. Okay, you see it all the way throughout the Bible. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christ follower, this world is the worst it will ever get for you. It only gets better. You, you have to frame your situation that way. It only gets better. No matter what the outcomes of your life are, you will be with Jesus forever, and being with him is far greater than anything this broken world could ever offer you. God's goodness is not found in your circumstances. God's goodness is found in the person of Jesus, and Jesus redefines your circumstances. See, right after this, the king gets so ticked that, Nebu that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't fall down to him, and he tells them to heat up the furnace seven times hotter. If you're tracking with the Bible, seven is this perfect number. Basically what he's saying is make it hotter than, you know what I'm saying? It's so hot, it's so hot, listen, that the people that go to go bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into it die. What, what's the point of all that? Seven times is a way he's saying that the king is telling you it is so hot that nobody can save you from this. But God, but God. Y'all, here's the point. Sometimes the circumstances of life get so hot that the only way that you are ever going to experience deliverance is if God shows up. 
Can I tell you the greatest lesson I've learned in life? The safest place to be in life is not in safety. The safest place to be in life is with Jesus. Y'all, it's his presence. It's his presence. It's his presence. Let me show it to you. The king throws them into the fire. Verse 24, the king Nebuchadnezzar was astounded and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast these three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and he said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Let me introduce you to a word that theologians call a Christophany. A Christophany means that there are multiple times in the Old Testament where the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, actually shows up in the Bible. Let me give you an easier word. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. We see it when Jacob, when Jacob wrestles with God in Genesis 32, Emmanuel. We see it when Gideon sits face to face with God. We see it here. We see it all over the Bible. If you get anything that I say today, here's what I want you to get. The way you thrive in culture is not by having an easy life. It's because God entered in. See, God answers every single one of your questions by saying this, I will enter into your suffering, right? I will do it with you. How do you know that God is good? Because he entered in. He's not just sitting out in some far off space. He entered in. See, God didn't save, watch this. God did not save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, He saved them through their suffering. Daniel 3 is meant to answer how you can live with confidence in this world by knowing that God is good. Write it down. You can know that God is good because he entered in. He didn't just enter into the fiery furnace. He put on flesh so that he could enter into this life. He condescended his own throne so that he could save you. He didn't just enter in by doing that. As he left this world, he says that he would leave his spirit to live inside of you. You see, the point of the gospel is this. God doesn't leave you to suffer on your own. He is near to you. He is with you. Yeah, not only did Jesus Jesus die in your place, he lives inside of you. That, That is so important because here's what he never promises. He never promises that this world is going to be easy. But he does promise that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He does promise that he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And as J.R.R. Tolkien said, he does promise that one day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and make all the sad things become untrue. Listen, you don't need deliverance to experience freedom. What you need to experience freedom is you need fellowship with God in the middle of your suffering. Notice it. He answered them. He said, but I see four men, circle that word, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of God's. They're unbound. You notice that, right? They're in the middle of their suffering, experiencing freedom because they're there with their God. Told you this before, when Peter walks on water towards Jesus, the safest place Peter could have been in the middle of that storm was not in that boat, nor was it on the shore, it was with Jesus. So God calls him out to him, and even when he begins to sink, the point of the story is not that, G- that Peter sinks, but the point of the story is that even when he sinks, Jesus looks down and hands him his hand. Even whenever you're sinking and you're suffering, do you know what you have? You have a God that's continually reaching down to you and saying, I will never take my eyes off of you, even whenever you take them off of me and put them in your circumstances. Here's the point. The way to build a bold resistance to this culture and experience true freedom is not by avoiding suffering, but by walking through this world with Jesus. See, let me just tell you, 
The only reason that you can do that is because Jesus entered in. John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He became man. He tabernacled among us. He is grace and truth. He entered in. He put on a human flesh. He did what you and I could never do. And the most beautiful thing in this story is this. The same thing that shielded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace of this world is the same thing that will shield you. It's the love of God and his presence in your life. Because whenever God sees you, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness, not your sin and shame. Listen, God never promises that life will be easy, but he does promise that he will be with you. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, listen to what he said. And God the Father, as it were, put the cup before the Son, which was far more vastly terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. And he said, my son, here is the cup. Smell it and see it. If you drink it, you will be utterly destroyed. But if you don't, they will perish. And Jesus decided to drink it. He decided to drink the cup of God's wrath into that fiery furnace so that you and I could have the unconditional love of God forever in your circumstances and for the rest of human history. Y'all, this is exactly what God has always done, right? When Moses was afraid to go deliver the people out of Israel, what does God tell him? I will be with you. Tell him the great I am is with you. When Israel traveled through the desert, what did God do? He fed them with manna from heaven and he, he clothed them with a pot, pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. When they got to the promised land, he set up a tabernacle so that he could be with them because his presence with them is exactly what saved them. When Jesus left the earth in Matthew chapter 28, the very last thing he said is, I am with you to the very end of the age. And then he breathed life back into his disciples and he said, I am sending you my spirit to live inside of you and I will be a real present hope in the midst of your struggle. Listen, friends, if you want to live in this world, you have to understand that in the middle of all of it, God is there. All he calls you to do is abide in him. Here's what I know. When you abide in him, you become like him and then he works through you. He becomes your comfort and your hope. He becomes your strong tower in the midst of troubles. Right, Psalm 61, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Remember that rock is Jesus. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. That means let me be in your presence. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Do you know how they did it? Do you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did it? That Hebrews 11, they, they were delivered from the fiery furnace. Do you know how they did it? They didn't. See, this is so important. They didn't do it. God did. They let God move through them. That's the key. Y'all, you don't have to do it. You don't have to try harder. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to submit yourself to God and he will do it through you. This is what religion says. Religion says try harder, do a bunch of stuff and God will be pleased with you. Here's one of the most freeing statements I can give you. The way you live a godly life is not by filling yourself with a bunch of activities and trying harder. The way you live a godly life is by trusting that God will work through you even whenever you don't see how. Y'all, they didn't isolate themselves. They didn't assimilate themselves. They worshiped God and they trusted Jesus to step into the gap and he did. Don't you get it? They didn't know the outcome but they trusted the God who did. They didn't know that God was going to quench the fire, but they trusted that no matter what, the God who holds their future is secure. And people noticed. 
people noticed, verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. For the second time in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar saw the power of God on display through the faithful, bold resistance of his people. And then he elevates them to a position of authority. Y'all, sometimes I think we have this so backwards. Sometimes I think we think we need a platform to speak for Jesus. And the reality is that God doesn't call us to a platform. He calls us to an altar. you, You realize that what he calls you to is to be faithful in what you already have, and he will do the rest. Can I just say this? If you want to change culture, you don't need to shout from the rooftops of social media that the world is jacked up. We don't need to boldly and confidently proclaim that we know better. What we need to do is we need to boldly and confidently trust Jesus in the middle. We don't need to trash the world. We need to serve and love the king. Right? We don't need to conform to the idols of this world. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Christians have made the grave mistake that to change culture means that we need to change policies and have platforms. Y'all, we, we think we need to write books and have huge conferences. And I just think sometimes we're just making little statues to ourselves. The better way is to faithfully serve God the way that he has designed us to and let the church do what the church is supposed to do. The church is supposed to be an army, not an audience, where all of us are faithfully serving him. And then watch this, he will position you in a place to where you can change the world, right? The way to change the world, here it is, is quiet, bold, confident worship in the God you love. And if you will do that, people will notice. That's what the king did. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Here's my question for you. What if we simply, what if we simply trusted that God knows exactly what he's doing and we believe that he is able? What if we did that? What if we boldly and confidently simply worshiped him? What do you think would happen in your life, in your family, and in your community? See, culture is always going to try to pull you in, but Jesus doesn't pull you in. He enters in. And because he entered in, you can trust him. Y'all, if, as we build on this theme of how to live in Babylon, how to live in Babylon without letting Babylon live in you, listen to me, here it is. It's by letting Jesus occupy the throne of your heart. He will not let anybody else do it. You hear what I'm saying? You will either bow down to him and worship or you will bow down to culture and worship, but he will not have it either other way. Here's the deal. You are going to bow to something you might as well bow to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Culture will set up idols and they will try their hardest to convince you that they will fulfill you. And let me just tell you, they won't. They won't. They won't. Success won't do it for you. Family won't complete you. Your spouse can't. Never, they were never meant to. Only God can do that. And yet they are really, really, really attractive idols or else we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't play with them. Don't think that you are more enlightened than the people of history. There's always gonna be a battle over the throne of your heart. What Daniel chapter three shows you is you can have the courage to stand or you will fall. But standing with Jesus is worth it. What if today you made a decision that you believe that God is good and he is able and even if he doesn't, He is worthy of your worship. That's how you do it. Father, I pray. I pray for these people whom I love and whom you love even more, that they would have the courage to stand, that we would stand in your goodness, rest in your grace, 
that we would look to the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, because you are worthy of our worship, because you defeated our greatest enemy, and you hold the whole world in your hands. God, I pray that you would help us to worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.